The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades Valley. Our scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew 6, and it's going to be verses 1 through 4. So if you want to turn there, that would be great. It's Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. So if you haven't done so, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 on this, the third Sunday of Lent. Lent is a uh, season of repentance that's meant to lead us to Easter. Another way of saying that would be Lent invites us into worship of the resurrected Christ. And Lent extends an invitation to you to come and worship the resurrected Jesus. And I think that that's an appropriate way to talk about it this morning because that's an accurate way to describe what the first half of Matthew 6 does. Matthew chapter 6, we could describe it as an invitation to worship. But if you were paying attention just a moment ago when our passage was read, you're probably thinking this is a rather strange invitation indeed. I mean, just look at the first word of verse 1. Beware. What invitation do you know of that starts that way? I've shared with you all before that I grew up uh, in South Georgia, and in this specific area I grew up in... um, Almost every kid that I knew that lived around me had a four-wheeler. My family had a four-wheeler. We rode through trails that were in all the woods surrounding our houses, not because we were allowed to. Um, No, at, at the beginning of almost every single trail we ever cut, you could find a sign that would say, beware, no trespassing. In fact, I think that most of those signs were put up because of us. But the point is that nobody ever mistook any of those signs as an invitation to enter the woods. It was quite the the opposite. So, how can I say that Matthew 6 is an invitation to enter into worship when it begins, beware? That's our question this morning. It's, It's what I want to know, because I do, I do believe that this is an invitation Believe that Jesus is inviting you, you specifically. A- after verse 1, the word you for the rest of the passage is in the singular. He's coming after you, your heart. I believe that Jesus is inviting you into real worship of him. But that invitation begins with the word beware. So how? That's my question. How is this an invitation to enter real worship of Jesus? That's what we're aiming to see. See it with me. Beginning with the beware of verse 1. Look at it. Matthew 6 and verse 1. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so this verse is a transitional point. It's transitioning us into a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us thus far, recall that we have been hearing Jesus talk about the need to have a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember the scribes and the Pharisees, their righteousness, they, they, they only cared about appearing externally righteous for their own glory. They want to go through the, the right actions, all the while being internally filled with unrighteousness. Externally, appearing righteous, internally, filled with unrighteousness. And Jesus looks at that and says, that's not actually righteousness at all. And what we've seen is throughout his sermon, he's been calling us into his kingdom, his way of life, of greater righteousness. That's both an internal and external righteousness. It's a whole person righteousness of actions that come out of, flow out of real and true affections. All of that, all aim not at my glory, but at the glory of God. That's what Jesus has been doing, has been saying, and that's what he's doing again right here, but he's doing it in a new way. If you remember, as we walk through chapter 5, Jesus has been showing us what this greater righteousness looks like in relation to the Word. Relation to the Word of God. In other words, he's been showing us what does it look like not just to follow God's Word externally and appear to be following it, but, but affectionately, from the heart, to have real affections for God that flow forth in actions in line with His Word. That's what he was showing us in chapter 5. Now he shows us what the greater righteousness looks like in relation to worship. Is not Matthew 6, 1 warning us about worship? that's merely external, merely concerned with external appearances? Look at it again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Jesus is going to give us three examples right after this of exactly what he means by that phrase, practicing your righteousness. He's going to give us examples of almsgiving, examples of prayer, and examples of fasting. These were three essential elements in Jewish worship. Jesus is saying, be, beware of going through righteous actions of worship. You can do the right actions. You can, you can give the alms. You can pray the prayers. You can fast the fasts. Beware of going through the righteous actions of worship for the wrong reason of recognition is that not what he says they do it in order to be seen by others in order to receive recognition look look at what they're doing right here worship which is supposed to be all about god jesus warns that it is possible to actually take that and make it all about ourselves we need to take heed here worship is what we are here to do it's what we gather week after week. It's not what we just gather week after week as the people of God. It's what we live our entire lives to do as an act of worship unto the Lord. And Jesus warns we can actually take that, which is meant to be all about God, centered on God, and center it on ourselves and make it about ourselves. He's warning about worship that's merely concerned with external appearances. Why? Why do we need to be warned about that? He tells us, for. You do this? And he says, for. 
then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says you need a warning because such worship is worthless. Such righteousness, it receives no reward from God. Now, I'm willing to bet that Jesus' logic right there, because you're all good Protestants, willing to bet that his logic sounds a little strange to you. I mean, is, is Jesus really telling us that we should pursue a righteous life of real worship in order to receive a reward? Like, how is that any better than the worship he's warning against? that wants recognition from others. Do you you see what I'm saying? If if worship that wants recognition from other people, if Jesus says, okay, that's right action, but with wrong motivation, wrong reason, then how is worship that wants a reward not the same thing? Right action with wrong motivation. Motivation. Jesus is very glad that we asked that question because that is what he is going to give us three examples in order to answer. He's going to give us three examples to answer that question and to extend an invitation. These three examples call us away from false worship that's only concerned with external appearances, and they invite us, they extend an invitation, invite us into real worship and its eternal reward. For the rest of this morning, we're just going to hone in on example number one, almsgiving. See it with me. Look at verse two. Thus, in other words, let me give you an example of what I was just talking about, right? Of, of not pursuing right worship actions for recognition, but of doing them in a real way, a righteous way that receives a reward. Let me give you a specific example of that. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they might be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to see is that all three of Jesus' examples that he gives have the exact same structure. I mean, seriously, just look at it this afternoon and circle the similar wording between the three, the, the, the repeat wording. It'll blow your mind how consistent the structure is. But here's the deal, just a basic structure for you. In every single one of these examples, in every case, he's going to begin with the negative side of the example. So don't do this. And then he's going to give us the positive side of the example. Instead, do this. And for both of those, for the negative and the positive, he's going to give us The when, the what, and the why. The when, the what, and the why. So, right here in verse 2, we just read through the negative side of the example. Let's walk through it, and let me show you the when, the what, and the why. First, the when. You can see the when in Jesus' opening words of the verse. When you give to the needy. This is the situation, the example, the occasion that Jesus is giving us. It's the occasion of almsgiving. Almsgiving is the practice of just simply giving to the poor, usually directly, although it can be through a collection. And Jesus seems to have both of those situations in mind right here, because he talks about doing this in the synagogue, which would have been in a gathered setting where they're taking up a collection. And he talks about doing it in the street where you would have done it more directly. No matter where you're doing this, it's all got the same purpose. 
Almsgiving's purpose is to give to and support the poor, the most destitute and needy in society. And in many ancient Near Eastern societies, this would have been like the only social safety net in existence. Like there was no government assistance. Thus, almsgiving, it was this regular, ongoing act of Jewish life. And it was an act of worship. It's an act instituted by the Old Testament itself. It's an act of worship. You, you were to give out of an overflow of your love for God who had provided for you. It's like A.J. prayed just a second ago. All provision was seen as being from him and it was not to be hoarded for myself and used solely for me and for myself. It was, it was to be used for him and for his praise. But Jesus says that's not what's going on at all with the scribes and the Pharisees. That's when we need to see the second thing. Secondly, we need to see the what of this negative example. When they give to the needy, what? What is it exactly that the scribes and the Pharisees are doing? Look again at verse 2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Shofar, ram's horn. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So when the scribes and the Pharisees give, what are they doing? Sounding a trumpet. Now, there are lots and lots of different opinions as to what this means. I read a lot of them. They boil down to primarily three, and I think all three are wrong. Some scholars say that this is a, a reference to the shape of the collection containers in the synagogues, that they had kind of like this horn shape, and so you can make a lot of noise dropping your coinage in them. Other scholars say, no, this is a, a reference to the actual blowing of trumpets to signal times of giving during feasts and festivals. Other scholars say, no, scribes and Pharisees would actually literally have a shofar ram's horn blown to announce their gifts whenever they gave. Personally, I don't think any of those things fit all the details of what Jesus says right here. I mean, it can't be just this shape of a collection container. He's not just talking about putting money into a collection container when you're in the synagogue. He's talking about when you give in the street as well. It can't be this whole blowing of the horns at feasts and festivals. He's not just talking about general giving that would happen at feasts. He's talking about everyday almsgiving. And he's talking about specific people calling attention to their actions. Besides, there is no evidence that ram's horns were ever used to announce giving at feasts, festivals, or in the lives of individuals. No evidence. So what is going on? I think it's a little bit more simple than that. I think, take this, test it, I think Jesus is painting a picture with his words. Like, like he does this quite often, in exaggerated, over-the-top ways. Jesus says things like, the Pharisees will strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They'll say things like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus apparently has camel jokes. Had like a whole camel bit in his routine, apparently. 
even in the Sermon on the Mount, we will see other exaggerated over-the-top sayings of Jesus. He's going to talk about removing a log, a beam, from your own eye before you take the speck out of anybody else's. Jesus, he loves to paint pictures with his words to help us get the point. And I think that's what he's doing right here in this negative side of the example. I think that even more so because he's going to do the same thing when we get to the positive side of the example. He's going to paint another word picture for us. But right here, what is the picture that he is painting? It's one of the incredible, ridiculous links that people will go to to make sure that others notice their righteousness. I mean, the picture is supposed to make you laugh. I, I, I will blast a trumpet to get your attention and make sure somebody sees me doing the right thing so I get credit for this thing. The imagery, I know it's kind of lost on us the first century jokes they don't really land anymore thank you but it's supposed to make us laugh it it's supposed to help us see the absurdity of such actions it's it's meant to make us chuckle and and think i'm so glad i'm not that ridiculous I'm so thankful we no longer go to crazy lengths to put our righteousness on display in order to be praised. I mean, it's, it's not like we literally post our righteousness for the world to see and have literal ways to measure the praise with likes and thumbs up and double taps let me view the insights do the quiet time for the gram get the bible right here and coffee here and inspirational post i'm not saying you can't instagram your bible and your coffee but we have to ask the hard questions of why but why do I do these things? Why do I raise my hands in worship? Why do I fall on my face? What, why do I do these things? Shades. The word picture that Jesus paints right here, it disarms us. It makes us laugh until we see ourselves in it. We, we do this, don't we? I, I do this. Seek recognition for, for righteousness. I hate this about myself. Oh my goodness. Can I, oh, let me get really vulnerable with you shades. And y'all aren't going to think this is a big deal. This is a big deal for me, okay? Let me get really vulnerable with the nastiness that exists in the heart of Jonathan Hayes. This is not inside of my notes at all. I was a couple of Christmases ago having a rather hard time due to a few different things, and something sent me over the top. I received a text from our worship team and in that text was a proof of the advent devotional that we were putting out and i scrolled through it and i looked at it and i was like oh yeah it looks good looks good looks good and i get to the very back page where it lists everyone who was involved in helping with the devotional and like the blackness of my heart bubbled up because i did not get my recognition and it was a 
not fun text conversation that I had to repent of and ask my fellow pastors at Shades for forgiveness of. We do this, don't we? We want to be recognized even when it involves righteousness. This, this goes beyond religious circles. I mean, this is common in our culture. The word posturing is a buzzword in our culture. Well, why? Because seeking recognition for righteousness, doing the right action is common practice. Posturing is, is wanting to be seen as being on the side of what's considered right or righteous, what looks like a just cause. But I only want to be seen doing that because I want the recognition for that. It has nothing to do with whether or not I actually care about the issue that's going on. It's doing the same thing that the Pharisees are doing right here. It's giving in order to be seen, recognized as righteous. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing. And Jesus says, that's not righteousness at all. That's not real worship at all. He says, it's hypocrisy. Isn't that what he said in verse 2? Look at it again. When you give, don't sound the trumpets as the hypocrites, as the hypocrites do. The fun and fancy Greek word has its origins in the theater. Originally, it just meant actor. It was somebody who wore masks, who put on a show, who presented themselves one way that had nothing to do with the actual reality of who they were in real life. They were an actor. It was fake. It was a show. Nothing to do with who they really were under the mask. And on the inside, you can see how this word easily was picked up and made its way into common speech to describe people like the Pharisees, like Jesus is describing right here. People that wanted to be seen as righteous. People who wanted to be seen as performing acts of worship. And it's all just a show. External actions that has nothing to do with real internal affections for God. So the question becomes, why? Why do the scribes and the Pharisees, and we, me, like, like, why do we do this? It's the third thing we need to see, the why. We've seen the when, the what, and now the why. One more time, verse 2, look at how it ends. When they give, the hypocrites, they sound trumpets to draw attentions to themselves. Why? So that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Why do they do it? They do it for the reward. The reward of recognition. The high of the likes. Do it to be seen by others. Praised by others. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Because their external actions look like they're about worship of God. But their internal affections are all about worship of self. And it is not too strong to say it that way. That's even clearer in the Greek. Because the word praised right here, look, look at it, where it says they do this so that they might be praised by others. That's the Greek word doxadzo. It literally means to glorify. They do this so that they might be glorified. 
by others. Jesus has actually used this word one other time so far in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to look back at it, it's back in chapter 5 and verse 16 where he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory, doxazo, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see the contrast between these two verses, which I don't think is a mistake at all. In both places, Jesus is talking about good works being seen. But in one place, the aim is God's glory. In the other place, the aim is quite literally my glory. In one place, the aim is inviting others into worship of God. In the other place, the aim is inviting others into worship of me. And Jesus says, if that's the aim, if that is the aim of your righteousness, then that will be the reward of your righteousness. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Recognition. It's what they wanted. It's what they got. And Jesus' words right here, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The implication of those words is that the recognition they receive is not ultimately a real reward at all. Because it's temporary. We're going to see over and over again throughout this chapter that Jesus defines a real reward as one that lasts forever. His words imply right here that recognition from people is no real reward at all because it's temporary. We, we know this experientially. I mean, do we not know that the praise of people, it passes as quickly as the high from our last set of likes? We know that seeking satisfaction and recognition from others, that's like trying to slake your thirst with salt water. Like in the end, it just makes the thirst worse. It's the implication of Jesus' words. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, all of it. There's none left. They aimed at people's praise and they got it. And now it's gone. I know that's what he means ultimately, not because that's what we experience experientially. I know ultimately that's what he means because that's how he concludes this entire section. After he gives us all three of the examples he's going to give us in chapter 6, the example of almsgiving, the example of prayer, the example of fasting, look at how he concludes this whole thing. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, don't seek a reward that's temporary. Treasure that won't last. But instead, verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus says, don't seek the reward, the temporary reward of recognition. No, instead, seek the real reward of righteousness, the real treasure that lasts forever. Notice right here, Jesus doesn't say, don't seek the reward. He doesn't say to people who are seeking this false reward of recognition that's temporary, hey, don't do that. You're just supposed to worship, get on your face as a servant of God and seek no reward whatsoever no he ups the ante he says that's not a real word. I, I want to actually lead you towards seeking something that's better the the, the real world Je- shades 
Jesus is not Immanuel Kant, okay? Immanuel Kant was a philosopher who believed that any, was a philosopher of the Enlightenment who believed that for any action to actually ultimately be good and valuable, it can't have any reward as its aim. We are children of the Enlightenment. That stuff is just the air we live and breathe in. But it is not the oxygen of Christianity. C.S. Lewis puts it best, as he so often does. I'm going to read you this quote at length because it's the best quote the man has got in his entire life. He says this, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition or recognition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud, pie, mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's what Jesus is saying. Why would you seek such a petty, temporary reward of recognition? No, seek the real reward of righteousness. Jesus, with his words, affirms our treasure-hunting hearts. All of our hearts long, desire, they want, they want something that's going to satisfy, whether that's recognition or a career or family or whatever it is. We all want something that's going to scratch that itch that we can never quite get to. Jesus affirms doesn't deny, he affirms our treasure-hunting hearts. And he does that by giving us a map that leads away from the fool's gold of recognition that will rust and rot. Leads us away from that, and it leads us to the real reward of righteousness, which is what? The answer lies in the when, what, and why of the positive side of Jesus' example of almsgiving. That's what we see in verses 3 to 4. Look at it with me. But when you give to the needy, we've done the don't do this, here's the do this. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the positive example. See the when, the what, and the why. First, the when. Not a whole lot to see here. It's the same as before. When you give to the needy. But the what, the what right here has changed. Because Jesus is describing not what the hypocrites do, but what his true followers are to do. That's how he starts it off. But when you, when you, my disciples, those who love me, those who follow me, those who should be about real righteousness, real worship, when you give to the needy, it should look different than hypocritical horn-blowing. What? What should it look like? Let's see. The second thing, the what. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, 
do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Alright, Jesus is painting another picture for us with his words right here. And it is just as hyperbolic as the first one. It's just at the opposite end of the spectrum. Do you see that? So, so whereas the hypocrite was pictured for us as making sure everyone knew what they were doing by letting them know with a trumpet. Now, Jesus' disciple, at the opposite of that spectrum, is pictured as making sure no one notices what they're doing by not even let their left hand know what their right hand's given out. Like, it's a hyperbolic, ridiculous picture. You can't do this, literally. Again, the picture is meant to make us laugh. Again, Jesus, I'm sorry, your jokes fall flat. But it's meant to make us laugh so that we get the point. Which is not ultimately that no one actually sees our giving. When Jesus says right here, so that your giving may be in secret, he doesn't literally mean, these are hyperbolic pictures, he doesn't literally mean that you can never let anyone know in any way that you ever give anything. Uh, New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, who I find very helpful in the Sermon on the Mount, he says if you wanted to do that, that would require like cash-only gifts, no tracking of anything for tax deductions, and if you ever want to give to like someone on the street, you're going to have to wear a ski mask lest you be recognized. Scholars got jokes. In other words, that's missing the whole point of Jesus' word picture. The whole point is not that no one sees but that our hearts only care about one person seeing. God. That's why we give. That's why we worship. Because we want one reward. God. See, see that with me. Third and finally, the why. See the why. Jesus says when we give, we don't do it for the temporary reward of being recognized, praised by others. No. Why do we do it? Verse 4. So that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What, what, why do we give? Why do we worship without seeking the temporary reward of recognition? Because we want the eternal reward that only God can give. What is that reward? Himself. Is that not the reward we want in worship? What, what, what is worship other than saying, God, I want you? If that's not what worship is, then I don't know what worship is. What is worship other than saying, God, I want you, I love you, I, I long for you? What is worship other than seeking God as our reward? Shades, when you come here week after week to this worship service, it is called that not because you come here to serve, but because you come here to be served. The table is set for you. Not by me or any other volunteer, by God Himself with the body and blood of His Son. We're here for you, here to receive from you. We want you 
We are always, always, always in the posture of receiving within the Christian faith. We are never in the posture of giving to God. Paul says that best in his sermon in Acts. He says, how could anyone even give to God as if he could be served by human hands? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the psalm says. There's nothing that you could give to him. God says in the psalms, if I was hungry, I would not ask you. He doesn't need anything. He gives everything. Even when we serve, even when we sacrifice, even when we use the language, and it's fine to use the language of giving to God. That is fine. As long as we understand that even when we serve and we give to God, we give to God the way that my kids give me Christmas gifts. It's my money. God provides every ounce of power for every righteous deed, every act of service ever so that He gets all the glory. What is worship other than seeking God as our reward? And is this not the very reward that Jesus has promised us throughout the Sermon on the Mount? Beginning all the way back at the Beatitudes, do you remember? Go, go look at the Beatitudes this afternoon. Every single one of them has a promise of reward. What are those promises of reward? They're all multiple ways of describing the same thing. They describe the reward of one day seeing His face, receiving full and finally His mercy where we are called His sons and His daughters, where we are embraced by His comfort, enjoying His inheritance that He has purchased for us, experiencing full and final satisfaction in Him again and again and again. We see He is our reward. He's the treasure that neither rust nor moth can destroy nor thief can steal. He is the treasure your heart has been hunting for. Everyone, every person on the planet lives longing for reward. We call it all sorts of things. Love, purpose, meaning, career, whatever. We all live our lives trying to gain something that's going to ultimately satisfy this thing down deep. And those of you who've been here at Shades for a very long time, you know that I love to use this wording. It's not in my notes, but this is the way I describe this all the time. I call it the joy of glory. Every last one of us is a joy-thirsty creature. We want our hearts to be satisfied. I just want to be happy. just want joy. And the drink that gives joy is glory. The beauty, the goodness, the greatness of something. The glory of a romance, a relationship that gives me joy. The glory of children and family. The glory of a job well done, a promotion, a career. The glory of athletic achievements, financial achievements. We are joy-thirsty creatures. And the drink that gives joy is glory. There's just one problem. Every single drink that we go after only offers us a temporary glory. And when its glory fades, so does the joy. And your thirst for joy 
is an eternal thirst. It can only be slaked by an eternal source of glory. We are thirsty. We all have this, this inner itch, this desire. We're constantly trying to satisfy a thirst to quench. We try it with all the different things, careers, relationships, children, money, religion. We spend our lives hunting for a treasure that will last, glory that will never fade, joy that will never subside. But like recognition, praise from people, all these things we seek it in, it's all temporary. And so is the satisfaction. But that's because all of those things were never created to satisfy. They were all created to lead us back to the only one who can. This is why they have a glory that's real and why they produce a joy that's real. Every created thing was made by God to display God. Everything was created by the Creator to put on display His glory. Every little thing is like a treasure map leading our hearts back to Him. The real eternal reward. And the good news, Shades, the good news of the Gospel is that Christ has purchased this reward for you. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, Though He, Christ, was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. That's the Gospel encapsulated. In other words, Christ, the King of the universe, owner of the cattle on a thousand hills who needs not anything, who possessed all, He came for the neediest of all. Me. You. And He came to give himself without trumpet announcement but in humble obscurity he came he was born of a peasant girl he was laid in a feeding trough he lived a perfect life and he was the only one deserving of a reward of eternity with god the father and yet he took on our sin our sin that had separated us from him he died the death that it deserved in our place purchasing our pardon and rising again as the beginning of him making all things new and one day he will bring the work that his resurrection began to completion in new creation he will return to remove every ounce of brokenness in this world everything that your heart instinctively knows is wrong and shouldn't be this way your heart knows that because your heart knows there's a way things should be they were created to be a way and his resurrection will make that a reality Easter will have its final effect. He will make all things new. And you will receive the reward He secured. Your heart fully and finally satisfied in Him. You will enjoy all of creation. New creation. Fully and finally. Perfectly. As it perfectly reflects His glory. You will enjoy relationships, music, food fun life you'll enjoy life all of it you will enjoy all the treasure maps that point your heart back to the ultimate treasure you'll enjoy all the gifts rightly as they bring you back to the giver you will have the reward of righteousness recognition not from people but from god he will recognize you as his true son and daughter verse four look at it your father who sees 
He recognizes. He sees. It doesn't matter if anybody else sees. Your Father who sees in secret, He will reward you. He will give you Himself forever. He is the reward. And shades, that's why it's not wrong to seek the reward. That's, that's why this, what we're describing right here, that's why this is not like the worship that seeks the praise of people. That's right action for wrong reason. But worship that seeks God as reward, that's, that's what worship is. That's right action for right reason. That's not faking worship of God to get glory for myself. No, that's really worshiping God to really get God. And that glorifies Him. Shades, this is what worship is. And this, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. I told you this was an invitation. It's an invitation. Yes, one that begins with the word be. Where the, the, the full sign that Jesus hangs over chapter 6 is beware, no hypocrisy. Perhaps we should hang such a sign over sanctuary doors. Might help. Beware. No hypocrisy. But don't miss the purpose. Don't miss the purpose of this warning. The purpose is to serve an invitation. The purpose of this warning is to keep you from missing the real reward beware no hypocrisy because that will miss the real reward that jesus is inviting you to receive he's inviting you and me away from false worship and into the real thing so that we get the real reward him he is the treasure your heart has been hunting for and he invites you to receive him freely through real worship.